Once you've marked hymn number 256, as Brother Eddie asked us to do, which we'll stand together in just a moment, a little bit, and sing together at the conclusion of the lesson, might we begin by saying what a great privilege it is that all of us have today. Our regular membership and visitors alike, we're so happy that each are able to come and be with us. What an exciting time to gather on the first day of the week, to look forward to the greatness and goodness that lies beyond, and the character of what steadies our mind in the turbulent and tumultuous times that can so often surround us day by day. We have been for some weeks now, this being the fifth Sunday of the series, looking at the books of the New Testament, striving to overview them and consider in a very powerful way the themes and teachings of each one broadly, but yet specific enough so that we can appreciate the thoroughness and greatness to be found in each one of those books. In our study, we've seen the majestic life of Christ set forth in four parallel accounts, Matthew through John. We saw the explosive growth after its establishment of the church in the book of Acts, and example after example of ways you and I need to follow in order to be Christians even today. Starting in Romans, we learn some of the most salient truths that mankind has perverted and troubled himself with, such as... Romans and Galatians set before us the need for obedient faith. In the Corinthian epistles, churches with problems, but yet they in repentance and in earnestness responded in faith and turned things about to be again right and pleasing unto God. Ephesians set before us the nature of the church of Christ, what it means to be a part of that body, which is in fact the very greatness of what God has to offer. We also saw in Philippians the wonderful nature of joy in Christ. In Colossians, the nature of the Christ of the church and how that all wisdom and knowledge are in Him. In First and Second Thessalonians, we came to appreciate the nature of the second coming of Christ, how that that had troubled those in Thessalonica and still troubles many today. That was the closing, though, of our last study, last Lord's Day morning. Today, let's pick up the mantle and race onward starting from 1 Timothy. And in fact, as we study First and Second Timothy, again, sister epistles in one way, but yet very different in another. Let's see what we might glean to aid us day by day as we're more pleasing unto God in walking by looking at the book of 1 Timothy. Without further ado, let's then consider very interestingly the sixth chapter book, starting with some of the teachings to be found in chapter 1. Timothy is a very interesting young man. We first encounter him on the biblical stage in the 16th chapter of Acts. From that point onward, he seems to have been a faithful and wonderful companion to Paul. In fact, from that very moment, he accompanied Paul on the second journey and was very near to him many times even on the third one. In seeing that about Timothy, though, doesn't that speak volumes about the mindset and earnestness that he had? to leave family and friends behind in Lystra and join Paul on this journey to spread the precious seed of the gospel. No wonder then as we reach the book of 1 Timothy, we find a man whom Paul left behind in Ephesus to set in order the things that are wanting. In fact, in appreciation of that thought, let's highlight some of the aspects of chapter 1. In this city of Ephesus, which was a major city in that era, Paul left Timothy in this congregation that had elders to nurture, strengthen, and guide him so that he could be a faithful proclaimer of the truth. In this book, note some of the issues with which he had to deal in the church at Ephesus. In verses 7 and 8 of chapter 1, 
Doesn't it sound amazing? There were false teachers alive and well in Ephesus who in fact were such that they were striving to be teachers of the law, but yet Paul said they don't know what they're talking about and they neither affirm that whereof they speak. Isn't that odd to be one who claims and desires to teach and yet is not thoroughly acquainted with the subject that he strives to teach? No wonder Timothy had a tremendous work ahead of him to make his way and nurture that church in Ephesus. Later in chapter 1, we in fact see Paul contrast that with the glorious gospel that had been committed to his trust in verse 11. Is it not similar for you and me? You and I as earthen vessels, 2 Corinthians 4, 7, are those which in fact have been entrusted with the gospel, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 4. Are you and I good caretakers of it? Are we those who rightly divide and study appropriately? Are we those who share it with others so that the gospel may in fact not be bound, but yet may go forth into all the corners of the world? That was the charge Paul left Timothy, the glorious gospel. Paul thus quickly admitted in verses 12 to 14 that he had been a persecutor, a blasphemer of the way of truth, the faith in fact, but he said he had obtained mercy because he did it ignorantly in unbelief. May we thus never forget the powerful words of verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that God sent Christ into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Now Paul admitted he considered himself the chief of sinners. You and I, though, as sinners, are still deserving of an eternity apart from him, and it's only by his majestic goodness and the power of his grace that he extended to us salvation through Christ. Paul freely wondered in that thought and relished in the glory of it. As the chapter closes, 1 Timothy 1, note the anthem of verse 17. Now unto God immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be glory and honor forever. Amen. Paul admitted the greatness and omnipotence of God. Doesn't that then make it all the more tragic to read in verses 19 through 21? the issues surrounding those that are shipwrecked in the faith. Don't you enjoy the beautiful play on words that the Scriptures often portray? What does it mean to suffer a shipwreck of the faith? That means one who formerly had sailed on the safe and calm seas of faithfulness, but who had run aground on the terrible sea of apostasy, and in so doing had lost the faithfulness and care that they formerly had known. It is possible to fall away from grace, isn't it? Those who once were saved can be lost. Of that there's no doubt. No wonder then in verse, the closing verse to the chapter, Paul names by name two for whom that had happened, Hymenaeus and Alexander. They are cases having been written now 2,000 years in sacred testimony of those who did fall from grace. How can men say it can't be done? It can be done. On to chapter 2, where we see instructions concerning worship and the faithfulness in the church. Beginning in verse 1, the power of prayer. He said, I exhort therefore that supplications, intercessions, prayers, and giving of thanks be made for all men. And then verse 2, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. The wonder of prayer. It's always appropriate for us to pray for our political leaders. 
that they will have the wisdom to guide their decisions by the teaching of God so that they will orient and lead our country in the pathway of righteousness. Isn't it still the case that righteousness exalteth the nation, but sin is a reproach to any people? To quote the closing verse of Proverbs 14. Those thoughts alone lead us to see then the power of prayer not only when we're assembled, but even in our private daily walk of life. Prayer being important, notice verse 4. God is not so willing then that any should perish, to note the character of 2 Peter 3 verse 9. But in this verse before us, God will have all men to come into the knowledge of the truth and thus to be saved. God doesn't want anyone ultimately to be lost. But if they choose to rebel against Him, and if they never obey His will, they will be. Christ is indeed, verse 5, the only mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. It is futile to attempt to come to God in any other way than through the Savior. It is a vain effort. Noting then, is it any wonder, with regard to the nature of the assemblies, modesty is always needed as it is in our daily walk of life. To be those who are described as being walking in shamefacedness and sobriety, verse number 9. Those who lift up holy hands to God, verse 8. It's still the case that the women are to learn in silence with all subjection, verses 11 and 12. And the reason being, as we noted not many Wednesday nights past, is centered back on the nature of all time and eternity. It was the original way that in fact Adam was first created and then Eve. And in the, and in the nature of the sin in, in Eden, she was deceived, but Adam was not. To say all that closes that chapter and leads us to see with regard to these instructions of the church, what about its leadership? Chapter number 3. The church is to have elders. And these are not just to be any men. There are qualifications that they must meet. In fact, comparing 1 Timothy 3 with Titus 1, there are 22 qualifications that an elder must meet. Notice, Timothy thus had a tremendous work ahead of him. This congregation in Ephesus had had elders. When the time came to appoint new ones, there were qualifications to be met. May we also understand that in that same chapter, deacons have qualifications as well. And among those qualifications, few and fewer in number than, than the elders admittedly, but still matters which are of eternal importance for not just any man can serve with the approval of heaven in the role of a deacon. As chapter 15 sits before us, a text that answers so many questions, that if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the ch church of God which is the house of God, the pillar and ground of the truth. The church must remain, if she is to be the church of God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Is it any wonder then with the aftermath of that thought, chapter 4 leads us to see that the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter days some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to, to, to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. We can see how the Scriptures tie together. After asserting that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth, Paul quickly admitted there will come a time, the Spirit so proclaiming that men will depart from that faith. And that will happen because they give heed to seducing spirits. That is, false teachers, others who proclaim the way of unrighteousness, just like Cain and Balaam did. 
those thoughts help us see that a few of the false teachings will be commanding to abstain from meats, teaching that it's not right to marry, verses 3 and 4 of this same chapter. You and I know that that long since has been the case amongst various types of religious teachings, those who teach that it's not good to marry. The Catholic Church teaches that today for its priests and for those that are of the clergy. And isn't it still true in regard to the abstaining from meats? The same organization teaches the same with respect to the season of Lent and other things like that. We can appreciate Paul taught the prophecy the church would fall away. On Wednesday night, we've devoted many months to a study of what ultimately led to both the Reformation and Restoration movements and the power of returning to simple and pure New Testament Christianity. Is there any wonder then in verse number 6 and 7 of this same chapter, Paul told Timothy something that every faithful gospel preacher must remember and never forget. Put them in remembrance. The basic truths of the Bible, probably a six or seven-year-old can understand them. At least a nine or ten-year-old can appreciate the simplicity of the truth. And yet as we age, we never lose the need to be reminded. Because the world, by way of its following of Satan, will try to cloud our mind, cloud our judgment, and we forget the most basic elemental truths of the Scriptures. Timothy, if you're a good preacher, put them in remembrance. Each preacher, I'm sure, as I myself try to do, when it comes to approaching a subject on which you've preached many times before, it's always important to try and phrase it in perhaps a new way to make it more memorable. But at least it's still based upon the same truths. For this is the only text we have to go by, isn't it? No preacher can, with the approval of heaven, augment his lesson with the New York Times or the Daily Post or the Herald Citizen. That won't get anybody to heaven. But is it not true, Paul thus said in verse number 8 of this chapter to Timothy, the nature of bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things. He isn't teaching that we should ignore the body and pay no attention to it, for we all prize good health. But in the eternal scheme of things, there's something far more important than that. Make sure you're right with God. Godliness is profitable unto all things. Is it any wonder then the text that Brother Harold read earlier in verse number 12? Let no man, Timothy, despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in faith, in purity. All that tells us that young people listen to me carefully. You can be a powerful example for goodness. You may not have reached your 20th year of life, and yet others can be led to Christ through you. Now, we who are older should appreciate that, but sometimes young folks don't think about the example they can be. Later on in 2 Timothy 2, Paul would tell him again almost the same thing. Flee youthful lusts, but rather set before your life great examples of what's godly. It's amazing what you can do in your example for Jesus. Continuing to close this chapter in 1 Timothy 4, isn't it amazing that in that same chapter we note verse 16, where Paul in a very earnest way told Timothy, continue in the doctrine that you've been delivered. May you and I continue in the same, never sliding from it, never walking off the trail and going either right or left, but continuing down the faithfulness of what is true to God. 
In chapter 5, we read about, again, the nature of an interesting circumstance in Ephesus. The church there had a program by which they supported widows that were widows indeed. Now, there were certain qualifications that had to be met for a lady, a widow, to be brought into that number. But upon being brought into that number, the church took care of them. In the course of that care, the closing verse to the chapter warned, or rather verse 21, gave us this admonition, Timothy, do nothing by partiality. Isn't it still true that one of the saddest things that can cause division and strife is when things are done with partiality? A given group has shown favoritism in the church. Such things ought not be. The gospel's for all. And you and I, as faithful individuals to the church, should strive to show forth the gospel to each one. Let nothing be done with partiality. In verse 22, keep thyself pure, Paul told Timothy. No Christian can hope to bring many other people to Christ if his own life is impure. If others see in my life or yours something that's different from what we claim to be preaching, they will have very little respect for us. Timothy, keep yourself pure, verse 22. And so it is in chapter 6. We notice some closing teachings in this majestic and final chapter to the book. Things that amazingly enough seem as pertinent today as they were in ancient Ephesus. Notice some of them, beginning in verse number 7. Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. But having food and raiment, let us be there with content. But he that would be rich falleth into temptation, into a snare. That's up through verse 9. Pause and note the importance of contentment. To appreciate that when our mind is cumbered and overwhelmed by the matters of gaining what the world has to offer, that leaves no room for Christ. It leaves no room for Bible study, for activities in the church. Paul said, godliness with contentment is great, great gain. No wonder the aftermath today in verse 10 is this, the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveteth after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. It's a fine thing to appreciate God's blessing monetarily that we can use to care for ourselves and family, but if that is the sole dictator of life, Paul says we've erred from the faith. We are simply in the wrong. There's no other way to read it. Verse 17, Paul then gave these instructions to Timothy, charge them that would be rich. Notice there was an order, a charge, that they appreciate the blessing of Almighty God for what they have and to so live in a way respecting that blessing. Verse 20 closes the book by reminding us about the false claims of science. I can never read that by appreciating the very profession in which I find myself. The understanding that scientists often lift themselves up in great order, but they teach things opposing this book, and thus by definition they must be wrong. The thought is science can claim many things that are false. May we never forget this is what is true. On to 2 Timothy we go. In four powerful chapters, we notice that this book was written roughly a year and a half to two years, it would seem, following the first one. But this, in a very tearful way, is the final book, apparently, that Paul ever wrote. At least it's the last one that the Holy Spirit chose to include in the Holy Scriptures. In this very last book that Paul wrote, that we have record of, 
we find many things about a man who is nearing his death. We know that all of us are one day, if the Lord delays his coming, going to be in that same position. We too are going to face death. Maybe in the book of 2 Timothy we can find how a faithful Christian, by the way he's lived his life, can also approach that not with dread, not with a feeling of hopelessness and fear, but with a feeling of victory, a feeling of triumph, a feeling that finally the victory is won, battlefield left behind, and glory, glory is awaiting. In chapter number 1, Paul makes a beautiful reference to the heritage of Timothy in verses 4 and 5 about the unfeigned faith that was first in his grandmother Lois and in his mother Eunice, and that Paul said, I'm persuaded, Timothy, that it's in you too. What a great way to start a book by building him up on the foundation that he had had from a child onward. In verse 7, we seem to see that Timothy by nature was a timid and shy man. But Paul warned him and helped him to see God has not given us the spirit of fear, but rather of power, of a sound mind. Timothy used that as a gospel preacher to bring others to the nature of the gospel. In verses 9 and 10, we've been called, in fact, to that gospel. And in so doing, God, through Christ, has brought light and Im or life and immortality to light through the gospel. Oh, what a refreshing scene then it is to see that life is now understood. Have you and I ever thought about the fact that before Jesus came and taught the nature of the gospel and the church became real, there was no real and thorough understanding of all that life entailed, but now there is. And so we see in verse 12, this man approaching his own death, he could speak that, he himself was of a position to appreciate that the greatness he now felt was such that it gave him hope. 2 Timothy 1, verse number 12, seen in language that's so penetrating. He said, I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Paul knew in whom he believed, and he was confident that that very one could safely entrust and keep that which he'd been committed to him until that marvelous day of judgment. Later in, first, in 2 Timothy 1, we note the example of Onesiphorus, this kind individual who had, been, who had befriended Paul even while he was in chains and had been a wonderful ministering servant to him. Is it any wonder then in regard to the church and the power of it? 2 Timothy 2 verse 2 leads us to see this. The things thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. The need for the instruction of others and the expansion one by one of the nature of the body of Christ. That again requires that each one live carefully. Verse number 4, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the things or the affairs of the world. We know that we sojourn here, but our sojourn here is but temporary. Our citizenship is in heaven. Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21. To say that is to say in verses 10, 11, and 12 of this chapter, the impressive power of the fact that if we deny Him, that is Christ, He will deny us. That has to be one of the shortest but sobering thoughts in all the New Testament. If we deny the Savior, on the day of judgment, He will deny us. Doesn't that say we do not need to deny Him now? Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. 
May we not be ashamed of it either, Romans 1.16. As this chapter rolls onward, we notice in verse 15, perhaps the most notable verse of that chapter, Steady to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Timothy, you give diligence to this word. You rightly divide it. You proclaim it in love and in truth, and in so doing, you will win many other souls to Christ. In closing the chapter, Paul again reminds him in verse 22 of fleeing youthful lusts and desiring to uphold only that which is right. That does bring another note of sadness, though, in chapter 3. For beginning in that chapter, we notice the thought that again there's going to come some difficult times, some dark days for the church, and those dark days did come. In that darkness, though, we see that though many would apostatize and fall away, Paul urged Timothy and all those that would be righteous, you, verses 9 through 13, do not fall away. You give earnest attention and heed to the Scriptures and follow only that. And in so doing, you will remain and continue in the way that leads to everlasting life. For isn't it still true in verse 15, Timothy, thou hast known from a babe the Holy Scriptures. And so in verse 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, or for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead that is appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. But endure affliction, continue in thy ministry, do all those things pleasing. For notice with me verses 6 through 8. Some of the most well-known verses in all this particular book. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all of them also that love is appearing. How was Paul approaching death? He mentioned a crown of victory, a crown of triumph awaiting. He knew that his fight was almost over. However, ahead of that fight was a tremendous victory ahead. Do you and I feel that way as Christians? We have every right to feel that way. Because notice as the chapter closes, he could even say in verse 16, The Lord stood by me. Though men deserted me and did not stand by me at my last defense, the Lord stood by me and preserved me until the coming of his heavenly kingdom. Verse number 18, God will preserve you and me too if we'll stand by his side, clasp his hand and never let it go. What a buoyant and lovely book Second Timothy is. That does help us see, though, that in the book of Titus, a three-chapter book that's found after the book of 2 Timothy, written to yet another preacher, a man named Titus. His circumstances and setting were just a little bit different, however. As we come to the book of Titus, we come to appreciate that this one was written shortly before the book of 2 Timothy. It was written, it seems, also when Paul was, in fact, a little bit before that final imprisonment from which he would never escape. In this book of Titus, we in fact see the following. Paul had visited the island of Crete, an island in the Mediterranean Sea, 
And as he visited that island, he left Titus behind to carry on the work on that place while he himself, that is Paul, went to labor elsewhere. But Titus posed some rather difficult challenges for, for Titus. Rather, the island of Crete posed some difficult challenges for, for Titus. Let's begin in verse 1. As we notice in that verse and the one that follows, we are blessedly shown a beautiful promise. In fact, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Eternal life, God has promised it. And God cannot lie. That necessarily means this is a sure promise. It awaits those, of course, that have so lived in a way to receive that promise and the benefits thereof. In verse 5, we learn what Paul's charge to Titus was. I charge thee in terms of working on Crete that thou mayest set in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city. There were some things lacking on Crete. Paul left Titus, you set them in order. And a part of that was ordaining elders. Do we thus doubt the importance of an elder? It's a sad thing when a church has not matured or has not seen fit to appoint men to occupy that office of elder. Titus was supposed to do so. He now lists, beginning in that opening chapter, some qualifications. And we noted earlier the listing in 1 Timothy 3. Notice in verse 9 one thing that is not listed in that earlier place. These elders are in fact to exhort and in such a way to oppose those who are gainsaying. Those who are teaching what they ought not, an elder should be sufficiently equipped to stop the mouths of these gainsayers with book, chapter, and verse to silence that which can damn the souls of those who would follow such things. Oh, how valuable the work of an elder is. Isn't it sad, though, when we see verse 16 of this chapter, that there are some who profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and reprobate unto every good work. There are those who say one thing, but their works don't testify what they've preached. Maybe you and I have called such a thing hypocritical, and so it is. No wonder Paul condemned such a thing to the, in the very outset and quickly in the opening verse of the next chapter says, to exhort and to follow that which is of sound doctrine. May we appreciate the importance thus of sound doctrine. And to that extent, Paul thus teaches Timothy and warns him that as he speaks to the elder men, the elder women, the younger men, tell them those things most needful and practical for their following of the truth. May we notice, beginning in verse 11 of that chapter, that the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Pausing only at that point to note, that God's grace has appeared to all, but that doesn't mean that all will have received it because that grace teaches something. It teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we must live soberly, righteously, and godly. A person who refuses to do that hasn't accepted the teaching and brands himself as one unworthy of the reception on that point of the blessings of God. To conclude that verse or that chapter in verse 14, we notice that speaking of Christ, He's purchased for us a marvelous possession and made us so that we can be zealous of good works. 
So it is beginning in chapter 3. We know the importance of being subject unto proper authority and to do so with all godliness and honesty. It is no wonder in verse 5 we're reminded of the importance of baptism, the washing of regeneration, whereby we come to know the love of God in recipient. And it is the case that a factious man, verses 10 and 11, must be one who after the first and second admonition is rejected. We mustn't allow strife to bother and trouble a church and lead it to division and to great difficulties. But those who call such must be first questioned, taught. But if they'll not receive it, they must be rejected. In verse 14, one last time, let ours also learn to maintain good works. May we ever be those that maintain, seek for ever greater works that are good in our lives. These three books we've studied so far, First and Second Timothy and Titus, were written to those that were preaching the gospel. That doesn't mean that there's no messages in it for us, even if we are preachers, for those messages of truth are as needful for us as for them to live holy, to live appropriately, to ever uphold the church, and to so conduct ourselves to oppose that which is false. The last book that we shall consider this morning, the one-chapter book of Philemon, in one rather scintillating chapter, the little book of Philemon helps us see the intercessory nature of Christianity. In fact, to very quickly summarize the book, wasn't it the following? There was a man living in Colossae whose name was Philemon. He had a slave, a servant, whose name was Onesimus. Onesimus had run away from his master for reasons that are not told to us. But as he ran away, he came in contact with Paul in the imperial city of Rome. On that occasion, Paul assisted Onesimus in the greatest way possible. He taught him the gospel. And that man obeyed the gospel and became a Christian. Though he was incredibly serviceable to Paul, he aided him, ministered to him, encouraged him, and he could have been a great aid in Paul's continuing ministry. But Paul admitted in this book of Philemon, I would not keep him for myself without your approval, Philemon. And so he sent Onesimus back to Philemon, but with him he carried this little one-chapter book, this letter. And what a tender letter it was. A letter in which he encouraged Philemon, accept him back, not as a slave, as a brother in Christ. You welcome him back and you encourage his faith. Don't tear it down. Don't put stumbling blocks in his way. You build him up as a brother in Christ. Not only that, Paul said, if he's wronged you in any way, put it on my account. Isn't that a tender way to deal with problems among brethren? Philemon, if he's wronged you in any way, I'll take care of it. Put it on my account and I'll see to it when I come. For notice in verses 21 and following, Paul said, I long to come and see you. I want to come and visit and you make things ready for I'm intending to come. And with that, the curtain closes on this one chapter book of Philemon. But isn't it a masterpiece of brotherly love in which Paul, in earnest concern for a new brother in Christ, encouraged the one that would be his master to deal with him as a Christian master should and to set before him that which would build up his faith and to not tear it down. And ought not will you and I do the same, building up each other's faith and not purposefully with our own Christian liberty destroying one another? Romans 14 verses 21 and following. 
with that, our study this morning has drawn to its conclusion. Finishing the book of Philemon, maybe we can summarize some of what we've seen in words like this. First Timothy through Philemon, four amazing books of the New Testament. In them, we've seen the necessity of proper living, to live as an example day by day of godly, godliness, and honesty, and in so doing, to uphold truth in all the ways it appears, to never forget to diligently study this book and live it out day by day. When we do that, we can proclaim powerful examples for others, and like that little book of Philemon, we also can appreciate the brotherhood that is the church, and to encourage each other in that which was noble and in that which is good. Today, are you a Christian? Are you an individual whose sins have been washed free by the blood of the Lamb? If you are not in a position like that, maybe we can remember that in these books there was also the subject of what would happen to those that were not faithful Christians, and it's too horrible to ultimately contemplate. We do not want to leave this life unready and unprepared to meet the Savior. Today, are you a Christian? And that requires, first of all, this. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess the sweet name of Jesus as the Son of God. And be baptized for the remission of sins. If you haven't done that, let today be the day. If you have, let us not forget again that matter of those latter two books, Titus and Philemon where we should appreciate we can apostatize. We can walk away from the faith. Have you done that? If you have, come back to your first love today. Christ with open arms is wanting to welcome you home, but you must make the first step. Come down this aisle in a moment. There's a whole room full of people excited to pray on your behalf. If we could do that today, wouldn't you let it be known while together we stand and while we sing?